Welcome to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Drew Tan, and I'm with Albert Lamb, our other co-host. Say hello. Hey, hey. Hello, everyone. How's everybody doing, all of our in-betweeners? Thanks for tuning in <laughs> once more. <laughs> in this episode, we are going to talk about the big two superhero hidden gems, so Marvel and DC comics that are kind of off the beaten path, things that the average Joe probably hasn't read, maybe hasn't even heard of. Hopefully, we'll bring some attention to some good stuff that you can check out. What do you say, Albert? Anything to add? Um, I'm completely behind that. I, I was somewhat amused by, <laughs> by this ongoing thing that we have where... <laughs> You tend to show our, our listeners a modicum of respect, and I tend to go out of my way to rib them, I, I like to think. <laughs> you mean uh, uh, when you call them gutter trash? Yeah. <laughs> Sup, gutter trash? They can be in-betweeners and gutter trash. That's true, that's true. But uh, my, my my name for them is definitely... Far less loving than yours. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I'm totally on board. Uh, we, we've spent the week compiling some comics that we feel are underrepresented and underappreciated. And we just want to be able to shine a light this week on those comics and, you know, hopefully bring a little bit of uh, enjoyment and knowledge to y'all yeah exactly one of the things that kind of precipitated this was how in our previous episode when we were talking about the black widow comics i dug out those richard k morgan black widow miniseries and i just remembered how great they they were you know right right so so thinking about how fun it was to unearth something that isn't really well known but it's definitely worth reading. It just kind of turned into an adventure to look at the rest of my Marvel and DC stuff to see what's in the collection, you know, that that uh, a lot of people don't really talk about very often, if at all. Mm. And and yeah, and I guess the other thing is that we're pretty much limiting this episode to Marvel and DC superhero stuff, because if we went to other publishers, you know, there's like it would just be too much, you know? Like, they would, there wouldn't really be a theme to the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Understood. Yeah. So there's there's not, not even going to be any Vertigo or any of DC's imprints or anything. Yeah. It's, well, it's strictly going to be superhero junk. I'm even going to go as far as to say, looking at my list... Oh, no, no. Never mind. I, I thought I was all Marvel on this one, but no, I, I've got some DC stuff, too. So, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. First of all, Albert, let me ask you something. What constitutes a hidden gem? How do how do we define hidden gem for the purpose of this exercise? Uh, I'm generally a pretty simple bloke. So um, when I think when I was trying to define it for myself, uh, the short description is basically comics. I, I will include personally comics that are either unnoticed by the masses or comics that have been forgotten to to time Mm -hmm. so those that's that's basically my my two criteria yeah makes sense makes sense yeah 
You feel that's accurate? Is there... I feel that's accurate, man. Okay. I, I do think that when we start talking about our different picks, we can kind of touch on the different degrees of how hidden something really is. Because yeah. I, that's that's another thing that I enjoyed thinking about when we were compiling our list is, is just how do we determine whether or not something is ignored or whether something is a comic that people don't really talk about. Because in all honesty, I don't really talk to a whole lot of other people about comics besides you and Zach and Shanus and you know, there's there's people online on Twitter or on forums or whatever, but for the most part, it's not like I'm hanging out at the store on Wednesdays just talking about the good old days or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Although I will say there was a time in my life where I don't know if I was a regular regular at my local comic book store. Like it wasn't a weekly thing, but I certainly came in you know, once a month, and I, I I did develop some relationships with some of the uh, comic book shop owners, and we would jaw on about comics, and it was a good time, you know, it was a good way to spend, you know, 30 minutes or something like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Remember those days, man, back when you used to not hate people as much as you do now? Uh, I tolerated people more back then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, back there was a point when I was a Wednesday warrior, man. I used to go every single Wednesday, but yeah, that that just doesn't happen anymore. Haven't done that for for years. Certainly, people that go to the store every week have fun conversations, talking about whatever comics. But uh, I guess for us, our main outlet probably is this podcast yeah. and a handful yeah, of other I, people that so. we know. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And, and just, in addition you know, to following that. comics, Twitter or Instagram or and things of that nature, social media. That's yeah. kind of how I follow along with what's going on in comics. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, you want to dive into our picks? Yeah, let's by all means, let's go. All right, man. You want to go first or should I? Uh. Sure, I'll I'll start with something that I've read recently, um, and I'll, I'll go first. Okay, so recently, well, we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but due to pandemic, we've gone and, uh, you know, we've uh, gone over all of our old collected comics uh, that we've accumulated over the past couple of years, and it's been an opportunity to finally dig into them and read them. And one of the comics that I came across was Captain Marvel uh, by Peter David uh, with art from Chris Cross as well as uh, Ivan Rice did some work. Uh, Land Medina, I think, did some work. Uh, There was a bunch of various artists. Uh, Ivan Rice did more art than I would have liked, but... Yeah, yeah. You ain't an you ain't an Ivan Race fan. I am not. I I am not a racist. <laughs> that's that's a Ivan Race fan, right? A racist. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I am not a racist at all. 
So Peter David's Captain Marvel had two volumes, from what I remember. It it was relaunched at some point with a new number one. But exactly. So to be specific, you're you're yeah. referring to the volume that started in 2002. I believe so. I need to double check that, but I. Yeah, well, I'll I'll come back to you and and uh, clarify once I've had a chance to check it out. But, um, yeah. So a little bit it's of back. The second one. The second, yeah. So yeah. it is. I will confirm that the Peter, the the Captain Marvel series that I'm uh, referring to is the the relaunch of the series. So, uh, just a little bit of backstory. Marvel at the time was running this contest or or the narrative was that they were there were three writers and they were competing for uh for for basically an ongoing comic so it was peter david mark miller and i forgot who the other writer was ron zimmerman it might be because i think he did that that ersatz batman story right yeah, uh, was it Ultimate Adventure or something like that? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so you had these three stories, and, uh, you know, it was a big promotional stunt. The idea was, like, we're going to... we're So Mark Miller did Marvel, I think, right? Or, no, he did Trouble. That's that's the story that he put out, was Trouble. Wait, was that was Trouble the one that was that could have been an ongoing series? Well, they. I think the idea was that they were all going to potent. They that all three of them had the potential to be an ongoing series, but it depended on sales. So they oh. were like all. <laughs> yeah, that that was the the promotional stunt that they were pulling was that. So uh, Peter David was going to relaunch his Captain Marvel. Mark Miller was going to put out this series Trouble, and um, and I don't remember who the third guy was, but. Ron Zimmerman, yeah, I checked. Yeah. It was uh, Ultimate Adventures. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that one ended up being a That dud. was just a miniseries also. It, yeah. they, I remember seeing the trade paperbacks for it. Yeah. But, so, um, it's, it's interesting, because uh, the original Captain Marvel series that came out, it was kind of bi- a big deal when it first launched. Uh, it was... It wasn't the introduction of Genisvel, but... Um, Peter David, his first run with uh, that version of Captain Marvel was, I think, it was more of a straightforward superhero story. Because I did, mm-hmm. I do remember having those issues way back when, and I read them, and you know they were they were a fine superhero story. Uh, super, it was a fine superhero series with good art by Criss Cross. But yeah, I remember borrowing your issues at some point years ago. Yeah, 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 but. I I remember when they relaunched it. It was kind of a big deal because um, at the time it it got I wouldn't say it got critical critical acclaim, but it definitely got a lot of attention for what he was trying to do. And mm-hmm. I the way that I would describe it is so the thing about genus uh, genus Vel genus Vel that was his name right yeah genus yeah genus Vel uh, slash Captain Marvel. The thing about his power set was he had this ability called cosmic awareness. So he was, for all intents and purposes, uh, super attuned to the universe 
and all of the various timelines that were that could potentially be you know so mm-hmm. cosmic awareness allowed him to navigate uh, you know the potentially navigate different alternative universes based on decisions that he made if that makes any sense um so are you saying that he could be up there in terms of voyeurism with heimdall and the watcher uh i think his power allows well you know what actually when you say that yeah that's uh, (laughs) i think that's actually pretty fair (laughs) (laughs) but in the first series they just played it off as a gag you know like uh, the idea of him uh having this special sense and when he relaunched this uh this version of captain marvel he really did a deep dive on the idea of captain marvel having the ability to see multiple timelines and multiple universes and what it would mean for him to have effect over what what it would mean for his actions to have effect effects on these timelines you know Mm -hmm. so um so in the very first issue of the series what he has captain marvel do is this it shows captain marvel and He's actually pretty confident at the beginning of the first issue where he thinks he's finally gotten a, a, a full grasp of his power and of his understanding of the universe, of the multiverse, really. But then he makes a decision that ends up that ends up getting this young alien woman killed. And because this young alien woman dies, she is going to be this basically a messiah that brings peace across the galaxy and because you know he had to choose between saving a the destruction of an entire alien race and between saving one young girl's life he he like screwed over the galaxy you know (laughs) and as a result he breaks his brain. He goes crazy. <laughs> and that's then that's that's where the series starts and that's what the story and and that's the 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 path that Peter David follows over the course of 25 issues. And it's it's some pretty intense philosophical stuff that he goes over, you know? Mm-hmm. And on top of that the the one thing that I remember was, I remember him, uh, Peter David, being in an interview where he was talking about what he was trying to do with his Captain Captain Marvel, and in short, what he said was, he wanted to have a cosmic version of uh, Hannibal Lecter, and he <laughs> wanted to tell a story about cosmic Hannibal Lecter, basically. <laughs> that's that's a pretty creative twist. Yeah. I remember so, one of the uh, story arcs uh, when it was collected into trade paperbacks back in the day. One of the titles was Crazy Like a Fox. Yeah. And that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You know, it's just... It's... I I don't really know how to describe, like, the overarching ideas or, or even the philosophy that he's trying to explore. Like, I, I want to say, like, it might be called like determinism or something like that. I'd, I'd have to look into that more, but fatalism. 
I don't know, man. I'm not, I ain't smart. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like he he explores the idea of just um, you know, what it means to have this much power and to have this much awareness and what it means what what the consequences of your actions uh ultimately mean, right? Mhm. But in addition to that, he explores some other ideas that I thought were pretty pretty well done, uh, including the ideas of what it means for Genus Vell to live in the shadow of a hero like uh, of uh, to live in the shadow of his father, the the deceased Captain Marvel or the original Mar-Vell. Captain Marvel. Yeah, the original Captain Marvel, exactly. Marvel. So, Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Solar. <laughs> Batman. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, I I would say like so. I just recently read the twenty five issues, and it was a it was quite a heavy philosophical ride, and it's. I wouldn't say that it's heavy on too much action. Like, I don't think the action is really the focal point of it all. Uh, I did, although there there certainly was action in it, uh, and it did hold my attention. Um, but I, I will say that the the stuff that really drew me to it was the the some of the the ideas that he was exploring and the the philosophy of. Uh, of what he was trying to communicate, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's Captain Marvel by Peter David and uh, various artists. Yeah, they never made a, an omnibus or anything of that. You'd think that if if you, someone if Marvel were to put both volumes of his run together, that would be one omnibus that could be yeah. I don't know fifty or sixty issues. Yeah. And but I don't is... even think it's in trade paperbacks anymore. Those trade paperbacks are out of print. Yeah, I feel like when this came out, like all those years ago, um, like I remember it was like all over Wizard. That's that's how I was aware of it. So, Wizard was the center of the conversation back in those days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I remember when uh, it came out, like they, they would talk about it all the time and they were like constantly hyping it up. And since since that time... It's just kind of disappeared into the background. Like no one really talks about this run anymore. But I, I, you know, compared to some of the other Peter David stuff that I read, it's yeah, I think it's definitely up there. You know, like I, I, I never read his Hulk stuff or not all of it. I mean, it's it's a massive run. So, um, and or or even like his X Factor stuff. So it's you know, a little harder for me to say, but this is definitely uh, up there for me in terms of his works. Yeah. Do you think if Wizard had survived all these years, people would still remember his Captain Marvel run? I doubt it. Wizard was just, (laughs) it was just a machine, just constantly pumping stuff out and then just moving on to other things, you know? Yeah. Actually, speaking of machines, do you think that, if Marvel had been able to keep a consistent good artist on 
this Captain Marvel run? Do you think it would be better remembered than it actually is? Uh, truthfully, no. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. So, I, uh, so you don't I you don't I, think the art really made a difference in this series? I I think the art made a difference personally, but I don't think it would have made a difference overall. I see. I see. You know, and um, it reminds me of the very like last issue of the series, and you know, spoilers. So uh, I'll count to three. So if you don't want to hear it, uh, I'll 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 count to three. One, but, two. But how three. will they know when to come back? Uh, <laughs> I'll just spoil it. Whatever. <laughs> um, but. At the very end of the series, uh, after all of Captain Marvel's adventures, he gets a call from uh, some sort of cosmic being. Uh, I think it's a being related to Epoch. Mm -hmm. And uh, I forget what the being's name was, but essentially the being was contacting Captain Marvel and Rick Jones to tell them that the comic book had been canceled. Nice. Yeah. And the entire... The entire like last issue of the series is them just they're basically treating the comic book like it's a TV set or uh, uh, like a uh, yeah the the set of a TV show you know uh-huh. so they're taking away all the all the backgrounds all the backdrops like to the point where once everything's gone it's just basically a white blank canvas and it's just Captain Marvel standing there and one of the things that they mentioned in in the last issue was it was kind of sad and it was kind of futile but what what he said was you know what you had a good run and to some degree you were a a lesser known character that no one really knew of so the the very fact that you got as many issues as you did is pretty impressive you even got a chance to be relaunched you know mm-hmm. but Ultimately, uh, it was inevitable that you were going to be canceled, is is what they said. Yeah. So, it it stung a little to read that, you know. Yeah, that that sounds like an image that you got to put up on the Instagram page so we can all yeah. see it. I I don't remember that page at all. Yeah. I don't even know if I've read the end of Cap- that run of Captain Marvel. I yeah. remember reading some of it back in the day. Well, it took me like. It would well. It didn't take me a super long time to put it together, but it wasn't easy either, you know. Yeah, it took yeah. years. Yeah, and I did have to quote unquote cheat. So they weren't all from the quarter bin. I ultimately ended up having to get some from the dollar bins or back issue sales. Yeah. But, yeah, it's still overall a discount. Yeah, totally, man, totally. Yeah, and it's the very last scene of the series is. I don't know. There's something about it that that sticks in my mind, but it's Genus Vell standing there in in the void, and he's just going like, "There's a telephone there," and he basically says, "No matter what, I'm gonna be a superhero. Someone's gonna call me, and then, you know, I'm gonna go on an adventure, and <laughs> the stories are gonna continue, right?" It's true. And he's just determined to believe that, right? Yeah. But then. After a couple of minutes, he just goes, ah, nuts to this. And he decides to walk into the, the, he walks through the door into nothingness to, you know, so that he ceases to exist. 
and the door closes behind him. And a couple of seconds after that, the phone rings. So it's it's kind of a Twilight Zoney sort of uh, meta ending, but I was into it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that that sounds fun, man. That's the kind of thing that it's a good metaphor for a lot of big two it's, superhero comics. Yeah, exactly. For these characters that aren't very prominent, that don't typically yeah. have center stage. You know, they're yeah. not the big names. They're not Spider-Man or uh, Captain America or yeah. Batman or whatever. So yeah. there's always a chance that their adventures will be more sporadic. Yeah. And the funny thing is, uh, I feel like a, a little while after that, they they did bring Captain Marvel back in the Thunderbolts, but only to kill him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I reread that whole run last year of Thunder, that whole run of Thunderbolts, and yeah, uh, Fabian Nasiza wrote those he Thunderbolts. Killed him. He did, man. He killed him. Yeah, it it wasn't the best story. Yeah, and it wasn't for for a character like uh, you know, Genus Bell, Captain Marvel. It from what I remember. It was not a good way to go out. Like it wasn't. You know? It yeah. was a bad way to go out. Yeah. But <sighs> that doesn't mean we'll never see him again. Plus, we'll comics. always have these stories, and if you can find them, I highly recommend that you get them and uh, you know go check them out. Yeah, should be on Comixology, right? And probably on Marvel Unlimited, I imagine. Uh, I'll have to take your word for it. But looking, I'm, I just double checked. It is the Captain Marvel uh, 2002 series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you got, well, Drew? Well, the first thing that I wanted to talk about in this episode was a miniseries from DC Comics from early 2005, and this one is The Question by Rick Veach and Tommy Lee Edwards. So the title of the story is called Devils in the Details. And the question is a vigilante character. I don't remember if we've ever talked about him or mentioned him in any of our episodes before, but he's actually one of my favorite superhero characters. Back in the 80s, he had a series written by Denny O'Neill with art by Dennis Cowan. That was a really good run, like around 40 issues or so. And it just delved into the questions, crime fighting as in the city where crime was worse than Gotham City and he was he had to humble himself to to learn how to rise above it and he ended up uh learning martial arts from Richard Dragon and using his skills as a fighter as well as a as an investigative journalist to expose the corruption of the city but because it was Denny O'Neill it also dealt with a lot of social themes and philosophical issues the question was, as a character, was actually created by Steve Ditko back in the day, and the Denny O'Neill version wasn't really similar to the Ditko version. It was pretty different, actually, uh, conceptually speaking, and philosophically speaking as well. But it, it was a great run, and that was that, and the Justice League Unlimited cartoon really gave me a big love for the question as a character. Mm. So when I got the question uh, miniseries from 2004, this was something that I was reading as it came out, uh, 2005, I'm sorry, 
it might have come out in late 2004 and finished in 2005. But I remember this series because, number one, the artwork by Tommy Lee Edwards really stands out. It's it's very, um, I guess, computery is how I would describe it. Like, you can tell that he did a lot of this art on, a, on some kind of computer, and yet there's a really nice hand-drawn warmth to it. Like, it, it's not just models uh, in his backgrounds and stuff, but I think just the way that the images are layered and the, how the colors work, it's a really fun comic just to look at. And he does things with a real strong sense of graphic design. And there are some scenes here uh, that really take advantage of letting the artwork tell a story and set a mood in combination with the words. And that's something you always want to see in a comic book. So the, the premise of this miniseries is that it takes the question, but now posits him as a character who is this urban shaman. So he actually can speak to cities and cities can talk to him. But there's also a layer to it where on some level, you're not sure if it's some kind of special power that he has or if he's just so hopped up on drugs that he thinks he can do it. So there's there's a slight uh, bit of ambiguity there. But it, it it's fascinating because all of the hunches and the, the ideas he gets from the times that he communicates with cities end up working out for him. And he starts off as this investigative reporter in Chicago who takes a train ride to Metropolis because Metropolis is telling him that Lex Luthor has a plan to finally kill Superman. And the question can't have that happen. And what Luthor's plan is, is he's he's got this special, uh, he bought up a bunch of land in Metropolis and he hired this architect and a feng shui expert. <laughs> and somehow uh, through the ley lines and the, and the way that the chi flows through the city, it's it's like a special spot not just in the city, I think, but I think they might have even said on the whole planet where if they're able to purify it, the chi will flow so smoothly through that point and they're going to build this thing called the science spire. And ostensibly, it's supposed to be this monument to human ingenuity and creativity. But in reality, it's a really big tower that's going to channel the power of the earth so that he, Luthor can use that power to blast it straight at Superman. So like the idea is that it's Superman is a being who's powered by the sun, so he's a solar-powered creature. So what happens if the power of all the entire planet, the Earth, hits a solar creature? So theoretically, it's supposed to be enough to, to kill Superman once and for all. And, you know, that plot, whatever you think of it, if it's too far out there or if you think it's a really clever idea... It almost doesn't really matter because the whole story is just an excuse to have the question uh, patrol and do his vigilante stuff in Metropolis while he fights these criminals um, and deals with the threat to Superman. And th there's a lot of funny details that that uh, get thrown out here, like f funny ideas. There's this whole group introduced, a crime group called the Subterraneans, and they 
they're running crime right under Superman's nose in Metropolis. So one of the things for superhero readers, uh, you know, they're familiar with how Metropolis has lead-lined sewers, uh, a lead-lined sewer system because of Lex Luthor. You know, he he needs to have something so that Superman can't see into everything, right? So th- these subterranean dudes are holed up underground where they have their base of operations, and they're always keeping tabs on Superman. So if they know that he's on the other side of the planet fighting a giant monster or uh, you know, a runaway chemo or something, then that's that gives them like a 10 or 15 minute window to go upstairs and rob a bank. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's petty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what low stakes. <laughs> and, and there's also this other idea introduced where some of the, the drug dealers in Metropolis, you know where they do their uh, peddling? They do it in bathrooms. And their reasoning is because Superman is such a Boy Scout, he would never use his x-ray vision on a bathroom. (laughs) It's as good an idea as any, right? (laughs) Totally, man. Totally. But I really love how this comic portrays the question. He's there's there's something very poetic about his portrayal. He's a he's a deep thinker. Um there's some really well illustrated action scenes, but the writing is exquisite man like it's got some of the best poetry i've seen in a comic book so i I pulled out a page just so you guys can all get a taste of it but to me it it feels like rick veach really uh channeled i don't know he was on like some jack kerouac or the beats you know like Uh some beat poetry or something but here I'll, i'll read you a random snippet and this is just vic sage the question uh thinking this or or uh, narrating this but he says speak to me chicago oh paint chip feeling excuse, excuse me oh paint chip peeling over bare schizophrenic light bulb guide me windy city oh doomed crack baby suckling cola poison death nipple steer me oh ancient sisyphus elevator wheezing in monoxide brownstone despair direct me Oh, rattling elevated cattle cars hauling mad cannibal swarms of Moloch. Show me. Show me the sign. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> who writes that, man? It's like... It's, it's just uh, a evocative dream. stuff. Yeah, it, it's really evocative. It's it's a great series, man. Very artistically done. If you want, uh, I guess... Yeah, I guess I would call it a thinking man's superhero comic. It's it's not overly complex in terms of the plot, but I think the density of the ideas and the writing and the the graphics, uh, the design of it all, it it's stuff that'll give you a lot to read and reread. So I, I would definitely recommend it. And it's available on Comixology. I don't think it's ever been collected in a trade paperback or anything, but you can always find it digitally or check out the back issue bins. Nice, nice. Very good. Yeah. What's your next pick, Albert? I'm going to go with the adjectiveless Spider-Man uh, issues 38, 39, and 40. Okay. It is by J.M. DeMatteis. He's someone that we've mentioned fairly often on this uh, podcast because we just have so much affection and love for the guy. Um, but it's totally warranted because the guy is a massive unrecognized talent you know like Mm -hmm. well i wouldn't say he's unrecognized 
People underrated. definitely know. Huh? Underrated. Yeah. I mean, I feel like people definitely know him for Craven's Last Hunt, but he's done so much other stuff, you know? And yeah. I, I would say a lot of it is is quality work, you know? And this is another example of that. It's uh, These three issues were drawn, uh, were again, by Jam DeMatteis, written by Klaus Janssen, and... I mean, uh, written by Jam DeMatteis and drawn by Klaus Janssen. What did I say? You said written by Klaus Janssen. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah drawn by Klaus Janssen. So uh, it sort of follows in, like, I feel like once you've looked at uh, J.M. DeMatteis's work, there are certain things, certain patterns that reveal themselves. And one could argue that one of the things that he likes doing is he likes taking lesser-known villains, maybe even jobber villains, and deconstructing them or giving them, you know, purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, the greatest example of that is definitely Craven's Last Hunt, where he took this Z-list villain and he gave him such depth and such a a narrative swan song that... To this day, people still reference it and still go back to it mm-hmm. just because of its the sheer impact of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, this Spider-Man story focuses around Electro, which is another Spider-Man villain who, yeah, who's who's a jobber, you know? His his thing is he's an electric guy. He shoots electricity from his fingertips, and he's constantly robbing banks and getting into fights with Spider-Man. That's, you know, he's pretty one-dimensional uh, if you were just to look at him, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, the way that... So what he does with Electro in these three issues is, again, he... He looks at that character and he asks questions of 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 Electro and just applies those questions to to Electro to give him depth, you know? And yeah. he in this in this story, it's been a while, so like the details are a little fuzzy to me, but uh the main beats that I remember from it was that Electro realizes, is self aware of the fact that he's a joke, you know? Mm-hmm. And JMD Mateus tells a story that revolves around that, uh, just portraying it as what it means to be this person who strives for, who strives for, I guess, validation, mm-hmm. you know, because... He continues to do what he does, and everybody looks at him as as this joke. But he constantly just wants people to know, like, to notice him and to recognize him for the threat that he thinks he is. Yeah, yeah, that he know? thinks he is exactly. And it's uh, and and over the course of the story, uh, you see that uh, you see that um, dynamic played out in several different ways so you see peter parker trying to 
get approval from J. Jonah Jameson, who, like, he has no reason to like J. Jonah Jameson. J. Jonah Jameson makes his life hell as Spider-Man, but makes his life hell as his boss, too, you know? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he can't help himself but try to get some modicum of validation through his work, you know? Yeah. And yeah. They're, they even introduced this character, this woman who... I forget her name, but she... she uh, I, I, I don't really remember her, her like, storyline throughout the whole thing, but it... It it definitely plays with the idea of what it means to, because uh, I think she was like an editor or something like that, and she was new to the Daily Bugle, or yeah, and it was about her trying to, I guess, what's the word? It it was about her trying to get validation in her work as well, you know. Yeah. So you have all these different characters, and I just flipped through it a little, and you mentioned this to me earlier, Drew. You you, you asked me if there was this other this other point of view character in the story, this like uh, low rent crook mm-hmm. who was part of it, and he's part of the story too. And yeah, I I, I it, unfortunately it's been a while since I've read it, but. Um, I do think it's really interesting stuff. It's got lots of layers and Klaus Jansen's art. Like I love how just sketchy it looks. So, that so sketch inky. style. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know. Fun to look at. And uh, the dialogue that he gives to Electro, it's it's pretty powerful stuff. You know, it's just this guy who who just hates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? that, that's always the theme that, for some reason, man, it resonates with you and me a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been noticing that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's uh, the issues 38, 39, and 40 of the adjectiveless Spider-Man. And the, the mini series, or the, the, the story was called Light the Night. Yeah, probably one of the greatest Electro stories, if not the greatest I've ever read. I would say so. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's a really hidden gem because people don't really remember anything from that adjectiveless volume of Spider-Man other than the Todd McFarlane stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like the yeah. whole reason that book existed in the first place was because Todd McFarlane wanted to draw and write his own series. And after he left... We had that Eric Larson, uh, Revenge of the Sinister Six story, and I think there was like an Infinity War tie-in or something. And but the book pretty much floundered. You know, like there was a lot yeah. of stuff in there that is just really not memorable whatsoever. Yeah, I remember sure. even as a kid picking some of those up, and I remember the covers, but as far as the contents inside. I can't remember a single thing because they were that forgettable. Yeah. And and by the time these JMDM issues came out when I was a kid, I, I had stopped paying attention to that series entirely. So I never read it as a kid. I only read them a few years ago. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just happened to find them in some, uh, in a, you know, in a quarter bin, and it was like, oh shoot, it's Jam DM, and it's only three issues, so gotta do it. That's a sweet spot, dude. Like a whole yeah. story in three issues. Love that. Totally, totally. What you got now, Drew? So I'm gonna go with another Marvel book, and this is. Captain America, Dead Men Running by Darko Makin and Daniel Zizelge. I'm not sure if I pronounced the names correctly, so I'm sorry about that. But this was a three-issue miniseries from 2002. I don't know if people are too familiar with Darko Makan and Daniel Zizelge, but they're both Croatian, and I've seen their work in other books but this is the first it might be this might be the only comic of theirs that i i've read where they both uh teamed up together and it's interesting that they did this captain america comic it's never been collected in trade paperback from what i know but it should be available on comiXology and marvel unlimited uh yeah captain america dead men running is about this small group i think it's five of them five or six uh army or i don't know if they're army or marines or special forces or something but uh the small squad of american uh military they're in somewhere in uh south america and and there's they're basically doing some bad stuff uh in terms of like I guess they're not really working there. I think on the surface they're there to, to maintain peace and order, but in reality they're what they're actually doing is kidnapping kids of a rival gang to hold them hostage for a gang that they're working for. Uh, it, it's, it, it's kind of, uh, it's never really super clearly explained, uh, but that that's essentially what they're doing, but they end up getting caught up in in be, uh, behind enemy lines, and for whatever reason, um, I guess it's because a friend of a friend is aware of their situation, but doesn't necessarily know that they're uh, doing shady business on the side. They they end up getting in. Uh, America ends up sending Captain America to go rescue them, pull them out. And it, it's a story about Captain America, along with these soldiers, trekking through uh, these jungles in a hostile environment, while these uh, soldiers that he's escorting kind of don't want him with them. You know, like he's good to help them take out their enemies, but at the same time, if he knew what they were really doing, he wouldn't like it. Because as far as Captain America knows, he he just thinks that they're escorting these kids to back to their parents, not kidnapping them away from their parents. Yeah. So yeah, that that's not how you do Captain America, man. That's not that's not a good <laughs> thing to do to Cap. You don't want to lie to Captain America. No, you don't. Otherwise, otherwise you get the shield. Just... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the interesting thing about this series is that it's not really very much about captain america it's really more about these soldiers 
it feels very much like a Vertigo comic. Very unusual book for Marvel to put out. Maybe it's because of the artwork, because Daniel Zelge's art is very intentionally murky, and there's a lot of thick, brushy inks. So it it's really fun to look at. It's never so murky that it's unclear what you're looking at. But it's certainly not your typical superhero kind of artwork, you know. This ain't this ain't no Ivan Race, you know. <laughs> this this is not your DC or Marvel house style or anything close to what the house style is. Yeah. It's very uh just different, man. And and I feel like every time I've seen his artwork in other comics it's always been in Vertigo books or uh, image books. Like I, I remember one of the last things of his I read a few years ago was he did this comic with Brian Wood called Starve for Image Comics. And he's he's just not a guy that I would associate with superhero comics, let alone Captain America. But visually, this is just a treat. Mm. And the story, although three issues, it's fairly... Uh, simple because it is just a story about these uh, five soldiers um, and how they're trying to get out of this sticky situation well the title of the story like i said is called dead men running so that kind of gives an indication of how the story ends yeah (laughs) yeah it's, it's really not a traditional superhero or even captain america story but i really like it man i i found this in the quarter bin a few years ago all three issues and I just picked it up because it was an entire story. And I remember liking it enough to keep it. And I reread it for this week's episode. And it's just good stuff, man. Like, if anybody wants to read a Captain America comic that's just a different type of Captain America story, and maybe they're okay with it not really being focused on Captain America, I would recommend this, man. This is about as close as Marvel gets to a Vertigo comic as they ever do, you know? Yeah. I feel like... I feel like we've discussed several different kinds of stories in the past where the main character isn't necessarily the focal point of the story as much as he is this presence. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the point being that the story is a device to explore the the idea of the character, right? Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and I like those kinds of stories, you know? It, it doesn't always have to be about how is Captain America going to take down these terrorists? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How's he going to beat Flag Smasher this week? <laughs> yeah, totally, man. It, but, it, this comic really explores shades of morality and... It also does touch on some elements of Captain America's mythos, particularly his qualities as someone who inspires people to be better than what they are. Because these are all pretty much hardened soldiers that are okay with doing the wrong things for personal gain. But when they meet Captain America, even they start to, even, yeah, even they, some of them even start to get, you know, self-conscious about what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. What's your next pick, Albert? Um, so I'm gonna go with Old Man Logan, 
by Jeff Lemire and uh, Andrea Sorrentino did a lot of the issues, uh, the art, but he also, but there were other various artists as well. I will have to get back to you on who they were because uh, they were they were pretty spread out. But uh, the main artist is Andrea Sorrentino. Uh, he did a pretty substantial chunk of them. So the reason I went with this uh, was that I feel like Old Man Logan has been a big thing uh, recently, but. A lot of that is attributed to the Mark Miller, Old Man Logan, uh, Mark Miller and Steve McNiven uh, story that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that came out, it was a pretty big deal. It still is to the point where, uh, you know, it allowed Marvel to basically mine it for more stories all these years later, you know? Yeah. Like, so eventually they decided to do this old man logan series with jeff lemire and i don't think it gets quite as much attention or recognition as that series does uh although jeff lemire is a great writer and uh you know he he has a pretty massive career right now um you 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 mentioned this prior to us getting on this podcast drew but uh old man logan isn't necessarily something that he gets that gets name checked when they do discuss his body of work. Mm -hmm. And I like, if you were introducing Jeff Lemire at a public event, you wouldn't say, and I, here's Jeff Lemire, the writer of old man Logan. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like you would be like the creator of sweet tooth and the underwater welder and the nobody or, you know, the books that he's actually um, known for. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Descender. Exactly. Black Hammer. Yeah. He's got a massive body of work. This is not necessarily the one that jumps out. But I do think it it deserves recognition. Like, we've had this discussion in the past where you mentioned that when Jeff Lemire works on his mainstream books, it doesn't it doesn't hit you quite as much as uh his creator owned works and i think your hypothesis was that it was lacking in in heart essentially you know like when he does stuff for the big two like maybe due to editorial editorial uh edicts or whatever mm-hmm. or maybe just circumstance the the works he produces don't they just don't resonate quite as strongly as you would reading something like Sweet Tooth, you know? Yeah. But I will say that Old Man Logan or his Old Man Logan was something that that I felt pretty strongly about after having read it. Like the emotional uh uh, the emotional, the emotions that he was trying to convey, I, I think they hit pretty close to home with what he usually tends to do uh, with a lot of the stories that he's written. Mm-hmm. So, in his version of Old Man Logan, so okay, let me go back a little bit. For those of you who don't know what Old Man Logan is, Old Man Logan is a version of Wolverine in the future who is 
a cowboy <laughs> for yeah. you know like that's the only way that i can really describe it he lives in a post-apocalyptic wasteland where he's just been emotionally broken and all the superheroes are dead and uh the supervillains have risen up and taken over the world and all that's left of logan is this meek old man who just lives out his life with his family on this small farm Mm -hmm. and uh and that's the story that mark miller wrote was just uh logan going on this journey across i guess america you know Mm -hmm. but we don't ever really get any of the the context beyond the fact that uh logan one day one day due to mysterious tricks ends up killing all the x-men that's that's kind of the 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 event that pushes logan over the edge but we don't really you know between that and where he is in his present we don't really get that much information or context and i think what jeff lemire does is over the course of his story he fills all that in by fleshing out the relationship that wolverine slash logan has with his wife with his children you know because he lived such a long life at all those years later um but in mark miller's story we don't really get any of that you know we don't really see any of their interactions or we don't really get a full um taste of of what their relationship is like you know right right, so in old man logan the first thing that he does is so the story in old man logan by jeff lemire is logan logan from that future ends up back to our present you know uh in in our modern world that was when wolverine quote unquote died right yes (laughs) yes (laughs) but the X-Men still had to have Wolverine on the team, so they had to use some they time had travel old shenanigans. Man <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this version of Wolverine, he um you know, due to time travel and other shenanigans, he ends up in our present. And the first thing that he does is he sets out to murder the supervillains that are responsible for the uprising, but more personally the supervillains that will be responsible for killing his family. So he he writes it down on his uh, on his forearm, and he's got a list that includes. Uh, there was one jobber guy that I don't really remember. I'd have to go back and check his name, but the list also included the Hulk, Red Skull, and Mysterio. So he was gonna go and just assassinate these guys before they could kill his family yeah you know hang, hang on i got a question yeah so you said that he wrote this list on his forearm yeah what like with a marker or something i don't know i i'd have to look back at it but i i remember specifically him walking around with these names on his forearm he either wrote it down or carved it into his forearm. Well, well hang on. How can he do that? Because wouldn't his healing factor remove that stuff? Then he wrote it. If he didn't carve it, then he wrote it. 
even then, can Wolverine actually get a tattoo? I don't think it was a tattoo. It might have just been pen. Well, wouldn't that fade away pretty quickly? Not necessarily. Did he just write it back down every couple hours? Uh, I think you're just going to have to allow that part of the story to... What, are you asking me to suspend my disbelief? If you can believe that a man can fly, then yes. <laughs> uh, I think the idea of it was for dramatic effect. Why didn't so, he just write it on a piece of paper? Because it's more hateful when you write it on your body. But I, that doesn't make sense with his healing factor, dude. But it's he's not damaging his body. It's just ink or marker. He used a Sharpie. Permanent ink. Isn't that damage to the epidermis? Not necessarily. The epidermis will recognize that there is a foreign substance that does not belong there, treating it as an invasive object. Therefore, it is almost the same as a virus. That's not how that works. <laughs> That's not how that works at all. <laughs> you ain't giving me nothing, man. Uh, I'm not giving you that. <laughs> I'll give you plenty of things, but I won't give you that. <laughs> so you don't think that... So you think that Wolverine could get a tattoo? I didn't say that it was a tattoo. It was just a marking on his body. But what would be the difference between a marking and a tattoo? You would have... Well, I mean, neither of us has tattoos, but... Um, How do you know I don't have a tattoo? Okay, you do have a tattoo. How do you know I have a tattoo? <laughs> <laughs> My point being that you would have to... I think with uh, a tattoo, you it's basically injecting the ink into your body through pinpricks, right? Okay. Yeah, so you're 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 actually inserting the ink into your body. So okay, have you made the argument that his healing factor would, you know, the cells would replicate over the ink? Okay, mm -hmm. I'll buy that, mm -hmm. but. He's just writing on his body. It's not. It's not invasive. It's not any more invasive than our clothes are. Yeah, but Wolverine's always fighting with his shirt off. But he has pants. Sometimes they get torn up too. Yeah, but he gets new pants. He's fought naked. He has. He's fought naked in the. Canadian wilderness. Yeah, but it's not a perpetual state. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've exhausted that train of conversation. Personally, I was exhausted by that like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Anyways... <laughs> So he he uh, he uh, he proceeds to go on this rampage to to um, you know kill all these villains that he knows are going to be responsible for his future. But and 
while he's tracking them down, his story is inter. Uh, you see flashbacks of his life with his kids, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just Jeff Lemire doing what he does best, with which is you know, telling a story about families, fathers and sons, and well, in you know, in this in his case, he had a daughter too, but you know, just stories about being a parent and just the relationship that they developed with each other and just, you know, he found a way to tear out your heart in order to make you feel it so that, you know, even though we, we as the reader know that his family is already dead, it's just that much more impactful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, but um, without giving away too much, ultimately old man Logan has to come to grips with the fact that there are just certain things that he can't change. And I guess to some extent it's a story about, or at least that first arc is a story about just letting go and making peace with, or or making his peace with the death of his family, you know? Yeah. And, and it's preceded by a story where he ends up uh, and I told you this, and it's it's a little <laughs> it's a little funny slash weird, but so ultimately he ends up wandering uh, the you know America and the world after 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 the conclusion that he comes to because now he just feels like he has no purpose, and he remembers that in his future he he wanders up north to where the old Weapon X facility was. And in his future, that's where he meets his wife. But what he ends up doing is he ends up going up there in our present. And while he's up there, he encounters this little girl. And what we find out is this little girl will grow up to be his wife. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. But, you know... Jeff Lemire doesn't make it creepier or anything. Well, he doesn't make it any creepier than that, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but the the following arc is just about Wolverine t- or, or Old Man Logan taking it upon himself to, to make sure that this girl has a good life and doesn't end up having... Uh, having the same tragedies befall the woman that he knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, like, overall, I'd say uh, Jeff Lemire fills in... The The great thing about this series is it fills in a lot of the the blanks that, that Mark Miller left vague when he told his story. And I think Jeff Lemire does it in a in a great signature way, which is just by... By doing what he does best, you know, by telling stories about relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Well, although there were a couple of issues that... That I will ding a little bit. Uh, he does, like, a two-story arc, two, two-issue two arc where old man Logan fights Dracula. <laughs> I didn't need that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody really needs that. <laughs> 
Did Andrea Sorrentino draw that story too? No, he didn't. Uh, I I have to double check who the artist on that one is, but it wasn't Andrea Sorrentino. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's interesting to see how much work the two of them have done together over the years. Yeah. I believe Green Arrow came out before this. Yeah, it definitely came out before this because this Old Man Logan was, what, 2016? 2015. 2015, yeah. Oh, wait, no, no, you're right. Maybe it is 2016. So they had Green Arrow in their pockets, and then they did this. Uh, I don't remember what came after, but now they've got Gideon Falls. Or, well, I guess Gideon Falls has ended, but yeah. they've got their creator-owned book, and they also did Joker. Uh, yeah. Shoot, what was that Joker book we talked about? Killer Smile. Killer, Killer Smile. That's Killer right. Smile. Yeah, yeah, we did a whole episode on that. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting to see how, how their collaboration has evolved over the years. Yeah. I mean, it's cool that he has, like, go-to guys that he works with. And, uh, you know, Andrea Sorrentino has definitely grown over the years. Yeah. And improved. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the story that was uh, Old Man Logan versus Dracula was drawn by Philippe Andrade. His art was actually pretty good in that. But I still think... It, it's not enough for me to get over the idea of Wolverine versus Dracula. <laughs> yeah, that's not a matchup I ever enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Maybe when I was a kid, I liked those X-Men versus Dracula comics, but that's not really my thing anymore. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I can I totally... can't say I'm a... Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I... I can totally remove those two two or three issues from from my old man logan uh run and i don't they don't take away anything or they don't add anything to the overall story so i can remove them and feel confident that i wouldn't feel like i was missing anything at all yeah yeah what were you gonna say oh i was just gonna say that i've never really cared for superhero comics when they introduced the idea of fighting vampires or dracula yeah i'm not too into that idea like that that's the kind of thing that bores me to tears or well it doesn't even bore me to tears it it makes me not interested in just picking up the comic yeah like i don't i don't think i buy dracula as this all-powerful threat to the to any superheroes really yeah Um, he he just yeah like I, I he's in a world where you have Thanos and uh Galactus or really anyone like Dracula just doesn't belong there you know yeah yeah I I'd, I'd way rather read a comic about uh I don't know daredevil beating up muggers yeah yeah well i was gonna ask this was uh was the x-men versus vampires was that a big part of the claremont stuff i feel like that was the first time i might have seen that i don't remember it wasn't a huge part of it but there were a couple issues that bill sinkevich drew during the claremont run like there was one specific issue that i remember where dracula 
started trying to turn Storm into a vampire yeah. because yeah, yeah. Storm was hot and yeah. he needed a mate, so he wanted to make her the queen, you know? <laughs> yeah. You think that's funny, Albert? Well, when you put it that way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there was another, there was an annual, I remember, because I, ha- I had these comics when I was a kid, actually. There was an annual that I I believe Bilson Kevich also drew it, where Dracula comes back for his revenge, and yeah. he ends up, he ends up uh, taking, taking over, or I, I think he turns uh, the descendant or daughter of van helsing into a vampire and then they attacked the x-men and it it oh, was something man. that <laughs> occupied my mind when i was a kid but yeah yeah as an adult i i don't really have too much interest yeah reading it other than maybe the nostalgic value of it yeah i don't want to like beat the idea to death but i do feel like it's worth mentioning that even when it wasn't necessarily Dracula, like, I would see, uh, like, it always bugged me that Union Jack fought vampires. Like, that was his big thing. Yeah, like Baron Blood or somebody. Yeah, I was like, what a waste of w- such a cool character, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what I did it? not need that. Yeah. Why isn't he just fighting spies? People are always having superheroes fight vampires for some reason. I guess it's a matchup that fanboys really like to see. Is it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Fanboys are terrible. I mean, that too, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Drew. What you got? I'm going to share a Batman book now. So this book is called Batman Tenses. It's a two-part miniseries by Joe Casey, Cully Hamner, Dexter Vines, and Lee Luridge. So Tenses is two parts, two issues, but uh, each issue is a 64-page prestige format book. So it's really like the equivalent of six issues. This was published back in 2003. It is kind of tough to find, I think. It's never been collected into a trade paperback, at least not here in North America. I also checked on Comixology for it, and I couldn't find it on Comixology. So I'm not sure why that is. Uh, You can find it. In back issue bins, I looked it up before we started on mycomicshop.com, and you can buy it there. But this is actually one of my favorite Batman stories. You know, it. I felt kind of bad because after we did that one episode where we talked about our evergreen Batman comics, I totally didn't mention this comic. But this is definitely, for me at least, uh, an evergreen Batman story. So the the premise of Tenses is that it's a kind of a year one type story or a story that takes place during Batman's first year back in Gotham. It's about Bruce Wayne taking over his company again, his family's company and trying to run things his way, but also getting adjusted to the idea of being Batman and 
the city of Gotham getting adjusted to the idea of Batman. It's got a good mix of action and kind of uh, boardroom drama. So Joe Casey is one of my favorite writers of comics. Like I'd say he's he's top two up there with Peter Milligan. Like I collect everything that they do and I'm just fascinated by the pet themes that they tend to explore in their work, whether it's their creator-owned work or even the stuff they do for work for hire. And Batman Tenses, because it's got kind of a heavy emphasis on the business aspect of Bruce Wayne and uh, what he does with his company, it's it's fascinating to me because those are ideas that Joe Casey w- uh, explores in some of his other superhero comics. Like one of the things that he's most well known for is Wildcats version 3.0, which is all about the idea of a corporation being a superhero, a benevolent corporation. And even when he was writing his Uncanny X-Men run, he did some stuff with Archangel Warren Worthington as a businessman that you don't really see too much uh, in other X-Men comics. I feel like recently, in recent years, we've had a little bit more of that because when Hickman was doing some uh, stuff with with uh, Sunspot, he uh, you know introduced his took advantage of the character's wealth to and running a business and all that. But it feels like a lot of times when we have comics about superheroes who are millionaires, it's really just an excuse for them to have a bunch of gadgets and stuff. You rarely ever see them operating their company. Like maybe you'll get a a scene here and there where they're in a, a meeting and they get bored of what's being discussed and they have to go fight crime or something. But to actually see them make business decisions, it's not really typical in a lot of superhero comics. But here, that is something we see. And the other thing that happens in the story is it's kind of the rise of the the wacko villain, you know, like the, the, the rise of the freaks in Gotham. Because the the antagonist in this story is somebody that was laid off by Wayne Enterprises because Bruce Wayne was trying to trim the fat from his company. And this guy gets laid off and he starts to slowly lose his mind. But there's a sense that he has these powers, like he's got some kind of limited precognition. But it, it drives him mad. And that combined with the loss of his job pushes him into a life of crime. Uh, and it, it just gets a little more twisted as you get deeper into the story. But it I think it's kind of one of those stories that introduces maybe the first time Batman really fights a freak in his career. Because this by the end of the story, man, this this guy ends up killing uh, his own parents and he starts and he wears the skin of his father as he's fighting Batman. <laughs> Jeez. That's, that's pretty twisted. That is. Yeah. But it, yeah, I would definitely recommend this story. It's it's just a complete Batman story. It's it's really Batman in his purest form. Like there's no Robin or or anybody else helping him. It's it's just a pure Batman story. You see him doing some actual detective work you see him taking advantage of his identity as bruce wayne and you see a freak lose his mind and batman having to 
dealing with that. So it's pretty much my ideal Batman comic. Uh, the artwork is incredible. Cully Hamner is the guy that drew the comic book Red, which became a, a movie several years ago. I really like his art, man. He's He's got this clean style that is kind of reminiscent of like a Chris Sprouse or Brian Stelfreeze. Um, it's very graphically, uh, graphic design oriented. Like you can tell by how, how neat and how precise all the lines are. And it's just sharp looking. I really, really like the style of it. So yeah, Batman tenses, look it up at your comic book stores if they have back issue bins, because otherwise it's pretty hard to find. And I think that's another reason why it constitutes as a hidden gem. It's never been collected in a t- into a trade and I can't find it on Comixology. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that they're like DC and Marvel are both slowly putting stuff onto Comixology, but their libraries are just massive. So yeah. you never know how long it's going to take. Mm-hmm. For something as obscure as that. Yeah. Yeah. I do like Cully Hamner, though. His work on Red is its fun to look at. Yeah. He's such yeah, a good storyteller. Very crisp. Yeah. Yeah. It's just good action art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. What you got, Albert? What's next? So I am going to go back to J.M. DeMatteis, but this time I'm going to do a DC book. I am going to go over The Spectre by J.M. DeMatteis. Um, It's also going to include uh, Legends of the DC Universe that was drawn by Michael Zuli. And it's uh, Legends of the DC Universe issues 33 to 36, which is a precursor, like an, an introduction to uh, J.M. DeMatteis' uh, ongoing Spectre run, which ended up going for 27 issues. And that was drawn by Ryan, uh, included the art from Ryan Sook, as well as, uh, actually, I think Ryan Sook. Oh, there were some other artists who were Ray Fogel did some art. Uh, Norm Brayfogel did some art, and there was one issue where there was a guest writer. P. Craig Russell. P. Craig Russell did the covers. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought he and did some uh, interiors. I don't think he did the actual interiors. Yeah, it's Hamilton did some of the art, and Sook Craig Hamilton, Garcia. Um, yeah, but for the most part, it's, it's Ryan Sook and with, uh, Pete Craig Russell on covers and, uh, Bray Fogle, Norm Bray Fogle did a bunch of them and what was I going to say? Did you say uh, that there was a guest writer on one of the issues? Yes, that's what I was going to say. And, uh... Issue 19 had John Ostrander as the guest writer. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool because he wrote the other Spectre series from the 90s. Exactly. Exactly. So the Spectre as a character at this point was 
prior to this, it was who was the John? What was his original character's name? John. Are you, are you thinking about the original host of the Spectre? Yeah. Jim Corrigan. Jim Corrigan. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah. So up to this point, the Spectre had been Jim Corrigan. <clears throat> his human host was Jim Corrigan, and um, and what we saw was that up to this point. Uh, at this point in his in 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 comics, uh, Hal Jordan as the Green Lantern uh, had gone crazy. He had you know wiped out entire planets, even universes as parallax. I think like he was just this you know insane um, galactic threat, and he ends up sacrificing himself uh, in order to save the world, mm-hmm. but. In uh in the miniseries Day of Judgment by Geoff Johns and I don't remember who the artists on that were, but the the repercussion of that <laughs> Ivan Reyes was it? I don't know. Jeez. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, Day of Judgment as a series was not something that I thought of at all. Uh, it wasn't something that I was too interested in, but the repercut one of the fallout of that uh event was that hal jordan would assume the role of the new specter and that is where we pick up in this series and it's it's written by jam dimatteis and again we've we've talked about him several times uh we heck we just talked about him earlier in this podcast Mm -hmm. and it's it's a pretty cool take and different direction on on the idea of the Spectre because uh, the series that ran with the Spectre prior to this one was about the Spectre as the wrath of God, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And he was basically just this almighty, vengeful entity that smote, smited you know mm-hmm. people that deserved it you know mm-hmm. so a lot of those stories in the ostrander run revolved around um the power the the entity of the specter uh meeting out justice and vengeance against evil evil doers mm-hmm. but in this one uh jam dimatteis who who in a lot of his other series has explored um he's explored ideas about peace and ideas about forgiveness and you know a lot of very uplifting ideas about uh the power of compassion things like that right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what he does in the in his specter run is he makes it so that Hal Jordan as the Spectre, I think he, ren- I, I want to say he, he either renounces the, he renounces the title of the, the wrath of God or the spirit of vengeance or, you know, the, they're all basically the same, mm-hmm. like, general idea, but he sends Hal Jordan on a journey to become the spirit of redemption, you know? Mm-hmm. That's 
that's kind of the core, the crux of uh, Hal Jordan's character arc, and it's it's a pretty big. It's an inversion of the concept. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a pretty big deal because Hal Jordan's uh, Hal Jordan's reputation at this point is that to the world he's a murderer and for him to be entrusted with this power like you know this almighty power at that yeah uh, it's understandable that everybody would be terrified and afraid of it you know Mm -hmm. and and the idea that it it becomes a story about him as the spirit of redemption. It just makes sense because it, it, you know, in finding redemption for other people, it is about him seeking his own redemption, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And so it's cool that Jam Mateus is able to tell these stories where um, the specter again is this just all powerful being, but it's not necessarily about him like trading punches with uh you know with Solomon Grundy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not about that at all, you know. I mean, although again, there there's definitely action in the book and it's drawn beautifully, but uh it's really more about the the personal drama that's involved and um yeah, it, it's 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 about the internal turmoil and conflict that he has to overcome in order to make himself be better, mm-hmm. you know, to to find forgiveness. Yeah. So it's a pretty, it's a really well done comic. It's it's a like the other Spectre comic by John Ostrander is also a hidden gem, but that's something that. I feel makes it on a lot of lists as a hidden, as a recognizable hidden or as it makes it on a lot of lists as an acknowledged hidden gem. Whereas this run on the specter is, it's pretty good too. And I, I feel like it definitely deserves a, a look if you're a fan of the specter. Yeah. And it's never been collected at all. It has not. And I has not. checked Comixology. It's not available on Comixology either. Yeah, even the other Spectre is on Comixology. Yeah, the Ostrander Spectre is available on Comixology. Yeah. I don't have the DC uh, service, digital service, so I'm curious if it would be available on the DC comic book digital service. I don't know. Yeah, I... I'm not familiar like with their service at all or like what they offer, so it's hard for me to say. Yeah. yeah. But if anyone's interested in in reading this series, they've got to do the hard work and look for it, track it yeah. down in stores. Well, that's the thing sales. about. It took you a while to put it together. Yeah. I mean, but that's the thing about these hidden gems is that part of what makes them hidden is that they're hard to find. Is that DC and Marvel don't don't do the work of keeping them in print. They don't uh, yeah. they don't value them enough to promote them or to let people know about them even. 
Yeah, and it's you know? unfortunate because these are probably more artistic than a lot of the comics that do remain in print or popular or well-known. Yeah. And sure. again, it just comes back down to the fanboys, Albert. They're always ruining everything for us. They are. Maybe if the Spectre had a, a, a bandolier and a bunch of machine guns, maybe they would love him. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of the time that Dr. Fate had the tattoo over his eye and didn't wear a shirt. jeez. <laughs> I'm sure somebody out there thinks that's a hidden gem. <laughs> <laughs> If wouldn't it blow your mind if that got an omnibus? That would that would be shocked, man. Yeah. Because JMDM did a run on Doctor Fate that hasn't been collected yet either, and if they collected that '90s Doctor Fate first, yeah, I would be pissed, yeah. royally pissed. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. For sure, it's just. It would be insult to injury right there, you know? Mm-hmm. What you got, Drew? So my next story is a two-issue story from Spider-Man's Tangled Web. So this is issues five and six, and the story is called Flowers for Rhino by Peter Milligan and Duncan Figredo. So for those of you who remember about 20 years ago, Spider-Man's Tangled Web was an anthology series. It was essentially Spider-Man's version of Legends of the Dark Knight, where a bunch of different creative teams were invited to tell stories that didn't have to be tied into any of the current ongoing events or continuity. They could just do stories about Spider-Man uh, that they wanted to tell. I think it lasted 20-something issues, Pretty much every single one of those issues was a winner, except for there was a two-parter written by Daniel Way. You can ignore that one. But the entire run, I would say, is a hidden gem. But I believe Marvel did make an omnibus of it fairly recently. I don't know if it's still easy to find, but the the entire volume of Tangled Spider-Man's Tangled Web should be uh, available on Comixology and there were trade paperbacks of it uh, that are, I'm sure are out of print now. But these two issues in particular, I would just recommend because I like them a lot. Uh, Peter Milligan is my other favorite writer, along with Joe Casey. And Duncan Figredo is a super underrated artist. I think nowadays, at least he's known for drawing a lot of Hellboy comics after uh, Mike Mignola stepped back. But even in the 90s and early 2000s, he was doing a lot of great stuff. And he did a lot of that stuff with Peter Milligan on some British comics as well as some Vertigo books. So when the two of them came together to do Spider-Man, that was something that I had to check out. And as you might be able to surmise from the title of the story, Flowers for Rhino is a play on Flowers for Algernon, the famous science fiction or speculative fiction novel about a person who, shall we say, is not a genius 
who ends up becoming a genius. <laughs> and um, he's slow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to disrespect, say anything disrespectful. <laughs> but um, yeah. So this is kind of this. This is pretty much the same idea. It's it's done in a very playful manner, but the Rhino, who is one of Spider-Man's funnier villains, uh, just because he's a big guy who wears a rhino suit, it's it's just a ridiculous comic book concept, man. But he uh, he ain't the smite, smartest dude around. He's not a he's not the genius of Spider-Man's rogues gallery. But what this two-parter is is that he he he's doing some jobs for a local mob uh, and. He falls in love with the mob boss's daughter. Of course, she doesn't really think much of him because he's just a big goon in a rhino suit. But after a period of uh, disrespect, not necessarily from the girl, but just from people in general and his constant failures due to Spider-Man, he goes to this evil scientist who does this experiment ex- uh, experiment on him that turns him into... A genius and with this newfound genius he ends up running the mob himself and getting together with this mob boss's daughter and he just keeps on getting smarter and smarter as time progresses um so it it, it deviates a little bit from the flowers for algernon story but uh in this story it, it's still a pretty similar idea where being too smart ends up hurting because now he's aware of things that previously he wasn't aware of. Uh, but it, it's it's a really funny story about the rhino. Spider-Man shows up in, in both of the issues um, as a side character to help move the plot along. But it, it I think this is really worth reading because there's... A humanity to it like there's something in the way that they portray the rhino where he, even though he's this comical character and he's supposed to be funny man like you you have to laugh at him when you see the way that duncan figredo draws him and when he becomes when rhino becomes a genius he starts wearing these glasses and a business suit to look more educated and stuff it, <laughs> it's it's funny <laughs> and well, but he wears well the done. business suit, but he still has the rhino costume underneath it, right? Yeah, he has the rhino costume <laughs> underneath it because it's, it's so, irrevocably bonded to his skin. Yeah, so he's wearing a business suit, but he's still got this huge rhino horn coming out of his head. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's funny, man. Like, there's a scene here where, where uh, he's talking to some other mobster dude, and the dude misuses the word infer so he just kind of condescendingly corrects him because what he meant to say was imply and like they have this whole exchange where where they debate the difference between infer and imply like that's exactly the kind of conversation that that uh would just be infuriating if you were talking to someone smarter than you (laughs) (laughs) and then there's another scene later on when he's with the girl and at this point it's like the high point of the story where he's he's living the high life he's he's doing everything right he's he's been able to use his genius to to take advantage of the crime syndicate and become a kingpin and he's able to 
use his intelligence to create works of art. Like he's he's writing sonnets, writing poetry, novels, doing all this stuff, right? And uh, there's a scene where he lets his his girlfriend read a draft of his novel, and at one point she says to him, "This is this is pretty funny." She just she's just read a chapter of his book and she's telling him her opinion of what she read and this is what she says the chapter you wrote last night it's breathtaking the physicality of a young hemingway with the linguistic bravura of a modern day emily dickinson <laughs> it's like just this pretentious english lit major stuff you know <laughs> like yeah they're they're just a whole bunch of lines and panels in here that that made me laugh but at, at the end of the day there's still a pretty nice uh emotional heart behind it all just about this guy that nobody respects trying to find respect you know that that's really what this story is about mm. it's a very simple story it's definitely available on comiXology i would i would recommend not just these two issues but if you go on Comixology, you can look up Spider-Man's Tangled Web, Volume 1. It contains this story, uh, as well as a few other great stories. Or even just check out the entire series. It, it's uh, almost all good stuff, except for that Daniel Way story. Yeah, yeah, agreed. It's, uh, it's a really good anthology series, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a shame that they stopped it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they didn't keep on continuing it. No, actually, I do know why. It's because they hate us. Yeah, well, I was going to say it was probably sales. And, you know. The fanboys would have rather fanboys, kept on buying exactly. the JMS crap. Exactly. They They didn't want to spend money on an anthology series where, you know, they explored different ideas about Spider-Man or, or just... Different ideas in general. Yeah, exactly. They would rather... It was more important to the fanboys to have a Spider-Man book that was part of Marvel continuity and affected yeah. by the other books. They, they want to know that see, it matters. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it, it matters. <laughs> the, the dumbest thing that a fanboy can say, it matters. Yeah. <laughs> like, they matter. Yeah, exactly. It's like... It's a work of fiction, you know? So, like, this idea that, uh, you know, whatever um, whatever universe that you've meticulously, like, built for yourself, like, all, the, all these moving parts have to work in unison with each other. It's just, how anal do you have to be Seriously. in order to, like, live that way? Seriously. And it's not like... The Spider-Man comics of the era that did tie into events were better. I mean, Paul Jenkins is a great Spider-Man writer. Probably one of the best Spider-Man runs of the past 20 years outside of Bendis. But when he had to do an Avengers disassembled Spider-Man crossover, it was rubbish. But you know what? It mattered. (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> so whenever someone goes back and looks at 
uh, Avengers disassembled, they will say, that's what Spider-Man was doing at this point in time. Exactly. See, it all makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> he was he was getting himself organic webs. Yeah. Organic web shooters. <laughs> lame. I hate lame. fanboys, Albert. I do too. They're just rubbish. They're trash. Yeah. They're they're the real gutter trash. Yeah. And I don't mean I don't even mean that with affection the way that I that I say it to people that listen to our ba- podcast. Yeah. I mean that genuinely. <laughs> <laughs> What's your next book? Uh, the last book that I have here is another one by JMDM. And we have mentioned this previously in the past, but uh, it's something that's definitely worth mentioning. And that is Spectacular Spider-Man, issues 178 to issues 200. And this was written by JMD Mateus with art by Sal Basima. And I want to say he drew the whole thing. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. Yeah. And this was... This was an era of Spider-Man that I don't think gets nearly as much recognition as its contemporaries. Um, Well, certainly at the time, I don't think it got as much recognition, even though in terms of quality, this was substantially better than its contemporaries. Yeah. Um, It's weird now to think about it. Like that David Michelinie, like Spider-Man stuff. The amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I don't even know if, like, people think of it anymore. Well, I mean, they still, we, it's still in print and they make omnibuses of it because it has the Todd McFarlane stuff. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, and like... Then even, even the Mark Bagley stuff had had a Carnage and whatnot. That's true. So but, a lot of the David Michelinie stuff is still widely available, if not yeah. all of it. But I don't know. It just feels like it feels like in terms of like outside of Venom or like the T-Mac art, like a lot of the story elements that they built up, I don't even know if anyone really thinks about it anymore. I mean, which is good because those are stupid. Yeah, <laughs> you know those were comics that we read when we were kids, but we ain't kids no more. It just felt like when I was a kid that those stories were 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 really prevalent in my life, you know. Yeah. Whereas now, all these years later, like they've just kind of receded into the background. Yeah, you know, but. Yeah, but this spectacular Spider-Man was is definitely something that that was true to the core of of what was uh, at the heart of Spider-Man, and on top of that, it just it was a run that had real drama to it. You know that that's that's always what I think about when I think of this run, and it's unfortunate that they never collected in in an omnibus or anything yeah absolutely ridiculous no excuse for that none at all um 
the one main story that we that I remember from this, uh, the one that we talk about often, is um, the rivalry between Peter Parker and uh, Harry Osborn, the son of the gr- the original Green Goblin, who swore uh, who swore vengeance against Spider-Man for the death of his father, mm-hmm. and like I don't I don't remember if jmd mateus introduced the idea of harry osborne as the green goblin i don't think he did i feel like that was around in comics before him right i believe so yeah yeah but the thing that jmdm did was that he took that kernel of an idea of the son taking on the mantle of the father's uh character and continuing his this this like blood feud against his most hated enemy like Mm -hmm. he took that and he he just made it epic and dramatic you know yeah like fittingly so and that's the story that uh jm jm dimateus tells in in his spider-man run which is just the the buildup of the rivalry between these two former best friends and the ultimate conclusion of that battle Mm -hmm. you know it's pretty powerful stuff yeah it's pretty moving the the way that story well not yeah i guess the way it ends like there are a couple of there are a couple of climaxes to the harry osborne plot line uh i remember the the hologram cover issue was a pretty big highlight for me issue 189 and then that issue 200 was pretty powerful as well and those were both centered around harry osborne yeah yeah that issue 200 was um even as a kid even though i didn't fully understand it for all it was um like I knew there was powerful stuff happening there, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Sal Buscema's art was just the perfect complement to it, just because he, you know, he does excellent, like angry faces. Yeah, he <laughs> really on, does. He really does. And on top of that, like just the action, he he just draws so much power and force when he when he draws them like punching each other you know yeah that battle scene in issue 189 is it's it hits with force man yeah like, there's a lot of really good uh dynamic scenes in there yeah moments. there's even there's even this one issue where it's just about spider-man fighting the rhino and the whole issue is uh you know the green goblin orchestrating this battle between rhino and spider-man and spider-man just goes ape on the rhino you know yeah like i feel like in the past the way we've viewed rhino you just mentioned rhino earlier and Mm -hmm. he's just this huge monster of a man right and spider-man is substantially smaller than he is and you would assume that 
Spider-Man would have a hard time, but in this one issue, Spider-Man's just pissed, royally pissed <laughs> at, at, at the Rhino because he thinks that uh, the Rhino is coming after his family, you know? Yeah. So Spider-Man just goes balls to the wall and he just beats the crap out of the Rhino in in a just an almost terrifying way, you know, like the way that he draws uh Rhino's expression when when he's beat, he's uh he's pissing himself. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh that is my final pick is uh, Spectacular Spider-Man by Jim DiMatteis and Sal Basima. Nice, nice. Yeah. You got anything? I got a few more. I'll I'll go through them quick. But uh, the next one for me is Doctor 13, Architecture and Morality by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang. This is actually a story that was published in a comic called Tales of the Unexpected, issues one through eight. I guess Tales of the Unexpected had an, a Spectre story in it as well. But uh, it was a different creative team. It had nothing to, to do with Doctor 13 comic. So this is a, a DC comic, a DC series from, I believe, 2006, right around the time that the ongoing weekly series 52 was was happening, if I remember correctly. And what Doctor 13 is about architecture and morality and more sorry it's architecture and mortality not morality um this is a story about a bunch of d-list i don't even know if they're d-list they might be like f-list or something (laughs) like like these are a bunch of obscure characters that i had never heard of until i read this like maybe a couple of them I i had heard of like i'd Heard of Anthro, the 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 prehistoric cave cave dude, and there was I Vampire, but like I had when I first read this, I had no idea who Doctor Thirteen was or his daughter Tracy Thirteen or Genius Jones. Uh, like there's there's a whole bunch of just obscure DC characters. Like there's Infectious Last. There's this uh, talking Nazi gorilla in here. There's the the Haunted Tank. Remember the Haunted Tank comic from the 60s? I was more familiar with Haunted Tank than I was with uh, the Cave Boy or whatever he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's it sounds really bizarre, but it, it's actually a book that's a commentary on superhero comics. The commentary, not just on the DC universe specifically, but superhero comics, universally speaking, especially Marvel and DC. But you know, primarily it it, it deals directly with the writers and editors of the DC universe. They are really the architects of the story, so they they're the ones who determine who exists and who doesn't exist. And if you're not appearing in a comic book on a regular basis, you might as well not exist. And that's what this comic explores. It's about Dr. 13 and this ragtag group of people who are out to figure out where they belong in the universe. And apparently where they belong is 
really just in the imaginations of people who read and enjoy their stories. There's like this whole thing about how they they meet the architects of the universe. And at the time, the the guys who were writing 52, it was Grant Morrison, Greg Rucka, Mark Wade, and Chef Johns. So like the four of the four of them actually appear in this comic. Their faces are always at least partially obscured. So it's kind of funny that way. But you know, you you see enough where you can tell that it's them. Like they even have Grant Morrison talking in his Scottish accent and stuff, you know? Like it it's it's a pretty funny uh thing to do to to put them into the comic and treat them as the villains because they're basically the ones that are preventing all of these random characters from having a regular place in the DC universe. Like there's a lot of stuff here that deals with uh, metaphors and symbolism. Uh, it's, it's a very metatextual work that refers to the stuff that's going on in real life, as well as the events that you actually read in, in the comic. Yeah. Like it, it's definitely a, a clever comic. It's one that is pretty humorous. It's got a great sense of comedy, and the artwork is just immaculate. I mean, it's it's Cliff Chang, and even at this time he was doing some really good work. Like this might be some of my favorite work from his, and and uh, you know I, I say that in full acknowledgement of Paper Girls, but this is I really like his the way his art looks in in Doctor Thirteen. So it's it's available on Comixology. There is a trade paperback that I'm sure is out of print by now, but it, it's it's worth seeking out, especially if if you're down to read a clever superhero comic that isn't about characters that you recognize, but has commentary on superhero comics and how they work and how they function um, from a creative standpoint. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I remember reading your copy, like, a bunch of years back. Maybe I wasn't developed enough mentally to, like, fully <laughs> appreciate it at the time. Like, I thought it was fine, um, you know, but it wasn't anything that really jumped out at me. And I remember a couple of years ago, I ended up buying this, or I, I ended up finding... Um, Tales of the Unexpected? Tales of the Unexpected in the quarter bin, and as a backup story in it, it included uh, Doctor Thirteen, and I I ended up rereading that entire story, and yeah, it definitely it was definitely something that I ended up mulling over more and finding more of an appreciation for after the fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I I also do think that this is a story. That hits harder the more entrenched you are in superhero comics like if you're the kind of person that reads a good amount of superhero comics and not just that but you actually have interest in the people who create the comics like this is a really good one to read like i'd say for somebody that was just new to the genre it probably wouldn't be as interesting like there'd probably be a lot of jokes that just would fall flat if you didn't know who these creators were or uh, how obscure these characters actually are. 
but for people that are really into superhero comics this is i mean i hesitate to say it's required reading but this is something that i wish everybody would read yeah i like that yeah i dig that another book that i wanted to uh mention this is something i reread this week also just for this episode but it's a four issue miniseries from marvel comics fantastic four and iron man big in japan by zeb wells and jeff fish and seth fisher nice yeah this was a miniseries a four issue miniseries from uh 2005 slash 2006 the real draw for this one was the seth fisher artwork it's he's a well, he he passed away, but he was a, a really idiosyncratic artist. Like everything of his that I've read has been extremely interesting to look at. Like the way that he drew characters, the way that he laid out pages was always just so different from everything else that you would see in American comics. Because I think his influences were a lot more varied than a lot of other artists. And you could see it. Like you could tell from looking at his art that this guy read a lot of European comics. Like I see some I Mobius see influence in here. Yeah. And, and um, he was, I know he also lived in Japan and, and was influenced by a lot of manga and, and Japanese artwork as well. And you, you can kind of see some of that too. And specifically with big in Japan, uh, this is a story that's all about the fantastic four and Iron Man fighting an army of kaiju <laughs> like, nice it, it's it's all about these weird creatures and monsters that are terrorizing uh japan and and eventually uh they become a threat to the entire planet like there's not really a complicated story or plot to it like i wouldn't say this is really heavy reading but it's fun to to read because it's so cleanly illustrated and the the story gives you just enough to to follow what's happening and to give you motivation to to want to continue to to read and the the dialogue is snappy the characterizations are all on point but the artwork is really the star and i don't, i'm pretty sure even zeb wells wouldn't be offended if we said that you know like this artwork is just so wildly creative like there are some some pages deeper in the series like in issues 3 and 4 that that get pretty trippy like it, it's seriously stuff that i've never seen in a comic book before the fantastic four and iron man are trying to figure out how to basically go inside this gigantic kaiju that's so big he he steps on the continents you know like yeah and they're they're trying to go inside it, it it's it's really psychedelic yeah this is just a really creative comic if you enjoy really well illustrated superhero comics this is one to to pick up for the artwork i mean the the story like i said it, it's it's good enough man but check it out for the artwork it's not too difficult to find i think because it's on comiXology i don't think they ever made a trade paperback edition for some reason which is pretty weird but yeah any other any other seth fisher comics you should check those out too like we, we were talking a lot about jmd mateus today and he and Seth Fisher did a Green Lantern uh, original graphic novel, like a full-length book that's like 100 pages or something. 
Will World. Yeah. Yeah, that one is is really good too. And yeah. And probably the story in that one is worth reading just for the story, but because of the visual aspect, it's it's just that much better. Totally, totally. And the the final comic that I want to shout out, I think this one, I just wanted to find a hidden gem that was more like a single issue that you would have to, that somebody would have to dig through a long box and and seek out. (laughs) But it's an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight, Batman, issue 64, from September 1994, and this one is called Terminus. It's written by Jamie Delano and drawn by Chris Bacalo, inked by Mark Pennington. So this is a story that's just done in one issue. It's got no real connection to any continuity or anything like that. The story is about this hotel called the Terminus Hotel in Gotham City. And it's a, it's one of those hotels, like a single occupancy hotel maybe, or one of those just run down hotels that's almost like a condemned building, where a lot of uh, criminals and homeless people and drug addicts go to just to they flee there. You know, it's like a hiding spot where they can just be indoors. But the story is actually narrated by the hotel. So it's a creative premise where this hotel is narrating the story and you just kind of see uh, snippets of the lives of all these different um, people, characters that enter the hotel. And uh, the main one is a guy that's running from Batman, but you also see other people that are running for other reasons as well. So it's it's kind of like a, almost like slice of life except uh, you have to be prepared for a lot of uh, more crime-oriented motivations here. It's like people that are running from something that they did. The main guy that uh, Batman is chasing is a, is a guy that uh, ends up seeing these visions, I guess. Like, it's kind of like he's entered the Terminus Hotel and now he can't stop seeing Batman out of the corner of his eye and his whole world is on fire. So it's almost like he's in his, his own personal hell. It's a really well-written comic. If you want uh, a smart kind of a, maybe almost poetic one issue story, I would definitely recommend it. I'm not going to spoil anything more than that. Chris Bacalo's artwork is just excellent stuff. Like this is his stuff. When he was, I think it was like right around the time or maybe before he was doing Generation X. It's kind of like in that transitionary period. You know how uh, at some point his art got really stylized. But if you look at his early work, like in when he was doing Shade the Changing Man, it was more realistic. So this is kind of like along those lines, the way his art looks. Kind of like how his art looked uh, when he was drawing those death miniseries for Neil Gaiman. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's it's really attractive, really clear stuff. It's not as experimental as some of his later work would evolve into. So it's really easy to follow along with this one. But I feel like the the writing has enough <clears throat> has enough depth that 
it gives you things to ponder and consider. I mean, Jamie Delano cut his teeth on a lot of Vertigo books, so this is kind of <clears throat> along the same lines. So, nice. Yeah, those nice. are my picks for Good stuff. hidden gems. Good choices right there, man. Good choices. Oh. Yeah, this was a, a fun episode to do. It gave me an excuse to dive through my collection and pick out a bunch of things that I hadn't read in a while. Yeah. Just reread them. Give me give me more motivation to reread some of the stuff that I had in my collection. Yeah, we spend a lot of our time like just trying to catch up and constantly just reading all the new stuff that we con that that were always accumulating, always coming in, and um, yeah, like I don't I don't really get too a lot of occasion to reread my stuff because, you know, well yeah. what I tell Drew is I don't want to I don't want to die one day, and uh, not having read all of my comics. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like that, that thought haunts me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I try to do my best to, to constantly read, make sure I'm reading something new. Um, but it, it is good to go back and revisit, uh, the comics that, that I, uh, that we loved, you know? Yeah, totally. What's the point of owning it if you're not going to ever revisit it? Exactly. Exactly. For me, that's part of the fun of owning it, to know that at any point that I choose, I can, at any time that I choose, I can go back to my collection and, yeah, lose myself in something again. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of hidden gems that we have in our collection, I think. It would be cool to do another one of these one day. It gives us, give us an excuse to, to talk about random comics that we like. Yeah, I'd love to do that, man. Be a, a recurring segment, maybe a recurring uh, type of episode. Yeah, that would be a great idea. All right. Well, next week in our next episode, if things go according to plan, we will do an autopsy on Black Widow, the movie. That's right. So this is Between the Gutters, signing off for now. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to tell us what your favorite hidden gems are, feel free to let us know because we're always interested in, in hearing what other people have to say about comics. You can always reach out to us on our Instagram or Twitter or email us at betweenthegutterspodcast at gmail.com. For now, peace out. Bye, guys. Albert, what you got? Which Marvel or DC character, other than the question, would be the best poet? <laughs> Etrigan. 
Oh, great answer. Man. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> you came up with that quick, man. That's good, man. The rhymer, dude. Good. The rhyming demon. Yeah, yeah. What else is he good for? <laughs> <laughs>